Hello and welcome to the Majlis Podcast, Radio Free RP Deliberties, current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Radio Free RP Deliberties media manager here in Washington, D.C. Landlocked Central Asian countries have long relied on Russia as a trading partner and therefore the need for alternative routes was there for a long time. But a new reality involving Russia's war in Ukraine makes this endeavor an urgent task. And one such route that they are thinking about goes to south. To Pakistan and India via Afghanistan. In recent days, there has been a flurry of activities in destruction led by Uzbekistan and the countries in South Asia. Delegations were exchanged, documents were signed, and presidential meetings have taken place. Now we just learned that Uzbekistan has just received the first shipment through this route. It is just a first shipment, but what are the potentials for further expansion of this route? What are the opportunities, limitations, and challenges? If successful, what it could really mean for Uzbekistan, Central Asia, for the whole region? To discuss all these, I'm joined by James Dorsu, the Managing Director of uh, Crossair, LLC a consultancy firm, uh, Catherine Putz, uh, the managing editor of The Diplomat, Pahlawan Sadiq, managing editor of Radio Free Repeat Liberties Uzbek Service, and Bruce Panier, a long-time Central Asia analyst. Thank you, colleagues, for joining us in this important conversation. So, Uzbekistan receives the first shipment through the southern road. Great news uh, for the region, I guess. Uh, the work has been going on uh, in destruction for some time, but the timing could not be more crucial with Russia increasingly coming coming under sanction. Uh, let me uh, start with you, Bruce. Any thoughts on whether there is any connection between the two, the shipment and the sanction? Well, I mean, they've been talking about connecting the north and the south for a while, well, actually really since independence, but certainly in the last couple of years, there's been a, a greater push anyway. Remember, there was the connectivity conference that Uzbekistan hosted in July 2021. And, you know, that was that was really all about this north-south route. In strange ways, a lot of things have worked in the favor of this route opening up. You know, I mean, you mentioned what's happening in Russia, and that's certainly one of the things that's going to give new impetus to Central Asia's desire to have another trading import-export route that they can have. But, but you know, even what happened in Afghanistan last August, yeah. in, in a strange way, mm-hmm. um, also kind of contributed to the viability of, of this route, the fact that there seems to be stability along the Afghan section of it that wasn't there mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it's worth noting, and you can't really overemphasize the fact that, that, you know, Pakistan and Uzbekistan are getting along on this. Yeah. You know, they've had different relations over the years, and it's only the last couple of years that they really seem to be getting along a lot better. And a lot of that is based on this idea of a north-south trade route. Yeah, the, 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 there are lots of questions on that, Bruce, like how we come to this point. Obviously, we are going to talk about that. But the, the shipment came from India. Uh, Kathy, let me invite you here. The shipment came from India. Pakistan is very conservative on letting any Indian cargo pass through its land. Apparently, there wasn't an issue with this shipment. The reason I'm coming to you is you, you guys just had a, a story on this topic. What's your take on apparently a smooth operation of at least in this first shipment? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think we can't underplay the um, tensions that sort of always exist between India and Pakistan. Um, but when it comes to trade through the region, Pakistan stands to gain from solidifying and sort of continuing to test out and use this route to Uzbekistan. I think that has benefits to Pakistan itself, regardless of, of whether the original cargo comes from India. So, you know, it, it made sense. 
I mean, I you could see it. This is one of the reasons. I, I mean, any trade route to Uzbekistan has to cross through a number of countries, and all of them have problems. And we can, I'm sure, we'll get into those uh, a little later on. Yeah. But this is just another of the risks of trade, uh, and it seems to be one that certainly in this case was manageable. Now, I think it's worth noting that the cargo itself was very modest in in amount, but it it's a proof of principle that I think certainly Uzbekistan is happy about. Pakistan is happy about and the original sort of seller I think it was sugar that was the cargo the original mm. seller in India I'm sure is happy about it too yeah we, we remember like you mentioned that Kathy earlier uh, when India was trying to send um, shipment to Afghanistan just for humanitarian purposes Pakistan was not letting it for days trucks were stuck there in in, in Pakistan in this case it was smooth great perhaps uh, Palawan you could uh, help us to understand in terms of the, the scope and size and the content of this shipment what was this about? Uh, actually, it wasn't the first shipment. It was a second one, according mm. to reports on both uh, Pakistani and Uzbek media. Mm. It was also reported uh, by the official news agency of uh, Uzbekistan, Uzbek Foreign Ministry. First mm. cargo of some 40 tons of meat was exported on mm. March 9 from Karachi Airport by a private company called Shahin Group. Mm. Uh, the representatives of the company at the time told uh, local media, Pakistani media, that they began looking closely at the Uzbek market hmm. after two countries uh, signed an agreement on preferential trade. If you remember, the agreement was signed during President Mirziyoyev's visit to Pakistan on March 4. And uh, the Trans-Afghan Railway project was central topic of the uh, high-level discussions held in uh, Islamabad. I think it's a, it's a very significant trade activity linking uh, not just Uzbekistan, but the whole Central Asia with India and Pakistan. And it's, it is doubly important for Uzbekistan, which is double landlocked country. And when the second shipment carrying 140 tons of Indian sugar, arrived in Kabul on March 17. Taliban's Ministry of Industry and Commerce organized a kind of special ceremony to, to facilitate the cargo. And uh, Taliban's spokesperson was quoted as saying that it was a major step towards turning Afghanistan into a, a key trade link between Central and South Asia. As you know, uh, everyone is happy to do this business. I mean, from the first day when President Mirziyoyev came to power, he made clear that he wanted to do business with everyone. He was yeah, very yeah. quick to open borders with neighboring countries. And mm -hmm. one of the first things he did was to open logistic center on the border with Afghanistan. Yeah. And uh, we don't know the details of the security arrangements reached between Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Uzbekistan, between these countries. But definitely, th there is a, some kind of security arrangement in place, mm. which made it possible, yeah. Very interesting. So, James, you know, you have been posted in your previous assignments in various rules throughout the region, and you focus on logistics and security, as far as I know. And you just did a piece on the on the hell about the similar topics. So, with that, it's a great news that there is finally some kind of activity on this road. As I noted, this is just one shipment, and earlier Palawan said there was also another one earlier. But what are the chances of this turning into a breakthrough? Well, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of interest in seeing this succeed, both in Central Asia, because obviously they'll be able to trade in and out of the region. 
certainly on the part of Afghanistan, which certainly needs to do what it can to improve its image or improve the image of the Taliban government. And if they can show that they're amenable to free trade through the country, that'll certainly do, it'll certainly be, a, I guess you'd say, baby steps. But mm-hmm. it's, it's, they're doing what they can to actually show that they're, they're trying to govern in a responsible manner. And in the case of Pakistan, just in, in just looking at the latest news, I mean, it looks like things are going to be pretty unsettled until somebody figures out whether or not Prime Minister Khan is still in office or not. So that'll probably be resolved quickly. But it's in Pakistan's interest to show that you can still trade through the region, regardless of who's in charge, and that the earlier, I guess you'd say, misstep where they were refusing to move the, uh, the food aid from India to Afghanistan unless it was on a Pakistani truck just looked like, you know, some guy with a trucking contract was trying to squeeze that for everything he could rather than Pakistan was trying to help its, its suffering northern neighbor. So I think it's, on, it's in everybody's interest, either for image purposes, political reasons, or just plain mm-hmm. business to, uh, to kind of make it happen. Mm-hmm. And I think the most motivated are going to be Pakistan and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. Obviously, Afghanistan needs, uh, desperately needs source of income. And, you know, what, what better thing could be than this one, this uh, road flourishing between South Asia and Central Asia through Afghanistan. But from especially looking into this from Central Asian perspective, I mean, how much of a breakthrough this can be in case if this succeeds? I mean, so far we know that Central Asia has been relying on Russia on so many things, including trade. Uh, They also tried the Iranian road. Again, there are lots of limitations involved in that. In case if this thing happens, the Afghan road becomes a reality, more than just two shipments that we are talking about so far. How much of a breakthrough does this direction offers? Well, well, I think that, uh, you know, you'd mentioned the Afghan route, and actually that kind of offers Central Asia, I guess, a plan A and a plan B. Hmm. I mean, if everything between India and Pakistan is great, I guess they can ship stuff through uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan and India. But if not, you know, they can certainly use the the route through Iran to Chabahar port, which is supported by India. And then trade will just go by ship from uh, Chabahar to to India. So I think there's right now they kind of have the luxury of a fallback position or I guess you'd say dual channels. And also forget that, you know, don't forget India is also a potential big market, too. There's 80 million people. Uh, They have a large young population Mm. and they're a big food importer. So Mm. obviously there's a lot of opportunity for Uzbekistan example, export food. Mm. And obviously, you know, that route, both of them, the Iran and in the Afghan route, they also gave them access to ports, both in Karachi mm-hmm. and in Chabahar, that could further expand the opportunities for Central Asia to export and import beyond the region, uh, obviously. So, uh, yeah, but Bruce, again, coming back to you, if this works out, uh, again, we are talking in the sense of if is here, uh, we still don't know where we are headed with this. Obviously, we are going to talk about the challenges in a minute. But before that, so if this works out, I believe the, 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 the chances of the long-delayed trans-Afghan gas pipeline also improves, isn't it? <laughs> um, yes and no. Yes, and the fact that for once it's, um, like I said, it's, its security situation is, is improved. And so that would lead you to believe that it's, it's probably a lot more possible physically to go on the ground and, and do the this financially, it's going to be tough because you're going to need the back. You know, somebody with a lot of money is going to have to get behind this project. With the Taliban in power, it won't be any Western company anytime soon. You know, China would probably have the money, but what's in it for China, really? You know, that's that's pretty much been their attitude with Central Asia. They don't invest in big projects in Central Asia that don't benefit China in some way directly. 
you know that that's that would be the kicker with Tappy. Although, like I said, for, for it switched a little bit. There used to be people that expressed financial interest in investing in the project, but it's just impossible to to get out there and start building it because you didn't know when you were going to be attacked. Now you probably reasonable guarantee that in most yeah. parts of the country you won't get attacked, but because the Taliban are in power, no one's willing to put money into it. Yeah, and also under sanction uh, on so many levels. Uh, Palawan, earlier you touched upon this. I mean, the, there was also discussion between the uh, between the parties as far as this march to launch a railway project. What do we know about that? Uh, well, uh, you know, Uzbekistan has been looking uh, for an alternative uh, trade route uh, mm. ever since it gained independence in 1991. And in 1999, uh, Uzbekistan even joined five other former Soviet republics, including Ukraine, to become a member of Guam organization, I think, which still exists under the different name. Eurasian Pipeline Corridor and alternative trade routes was actively discussed within the Guam, but uh, later, after 9-11, Uzbekistan stopped its membership uh, in this organization for some uh, reason. And uh, Trans-Afghan Railway Project was the main topic, which was discussed last year at the conference in Tashkent and later during uh, President Mirziyoyev's visit as well. It's not the first attempt by Uzbekistan to establish alternative railway or alternative trade routes. In the past, late President Islam Karim spoke about the need to diversify Uzbekistan's Mm -hmm. trade routes by passing Russia and the railway connecting uh, Termez and Mazar-e-Sharif built by Uzbek specialists has already been operating since 2011. And uh, they want to expand this railway project to reach the Pakistani ports and Uzbekistan, as far as I know, yeah. Uzbekistan has already secured some two or three billion funds from international financial institutions. And even Russia's RJD, state railway company, I remember there were discussions, consultations between Uzbekistan's uh, uh, state railway company and RJD, Russia's state railway company. They were willing to join the project as well, and they were aiming at 25% stake in the Afghan Trans-Afghan Railway project. But as you know, they are now under under the sanctions. I'm not sure if they can uh, manage to join this project. But on the other hand, uh, the Western sh- sanctions on uh, Russia's state companies, including RJD and Russia's infrastructure, may uh, make the Trans-Afghan Railway project even more attractive for them as well. Hmm. Great points there. Also, I have a follow-up, Palawan, just stay there. You know, also, you know, my English is still improving. We were uh, pronouncing the word uh, route in two ways here, route and route. What's the right way to pronounce that, native speakers? I do both, actually. Yeah, depends on uh, where your English is from. Okay, okay, then fine. You can take the route, or you can be in route. Okay, then fine. Um, so, uh, Palawan, just a follow-up on that. So, Uzbekistan is relying into this route to do what kind of trade? I mean, what it expects to import, what it expects to export. Well, you know, it it it, it exports uh, uh, lots of stuff, raw materials. It used to export uh, cotton mainly in the past, hmm. but uh, cotton is uh, being produced, reproduced inside the country now. They're not exporting. They're no longer exporting raw materials. Materials, but mm. they export uh, gold, they export uranium, they export all sorts of uh, textile products to modern uh, more than 100 countries. Mm. 
the, the trade uh, route uh, mainly as it was uh, created during Soviet time, trade route passes main, I mean, all the main trade routes, uh, including pipelines, which was built during Soviet time to export Uzbekistan's gas, mm. for example, from Bukhara to Russia's Ural region, etc. And they all pass through Russia. And for example, with a, with a full implementation of this uh, Trans-Afghan Railway project, mm. according to official uh, estimates, mm. it is expected that the transportation of goods from Pakistan to Uzbekistan or vice versa will take not 35 days as it is now, mm. but three to five apparently. Mm. At the same time, the cost of transporting one standard uh, freight container, for example, apparently can be reduced by almost three times. Mm. According to forecasts, the volume of cargo transportation along this route can reach uh, one million tons per year. Mm. Okay, I think the way uh, Palawan is explaining this, even even forecast, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm saying like the way Palawan is explaining this, Kathy, even you know, sitting in the studio in Washington DC, I'm I'm excited about this about the future of this uh, this project. So, what is this going to mean? I mean, it has to be beyond Uzbekistan in case we have established route there. It should benefit all Central Asia. So what I'm saying is, the, what, what's this going to mean for Central Asia as a whole? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think it's sort of cliche to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uzbekistan is central to Central Asia. And so if, if Uzbekistan can sort of establish these routes, uh, then other countries can piggyback on those hopefully with greater regional cooperation, which everybody's always talking about. I think it's also worth mentioning that at present, Uzbekistan does not export a whole lot to South Asia and does not import a whole lot from South Mm. Asia. You know, we've been focusing on the importance of these routes, but there's also markets at the end of those routes that I think Uzbekistan can look at expanding into Mm. uh, because it doesn't have a huge presence in them. And so you know, it will benefit global trade for Uzbekistan, but also regional trade. Uh, When you look at where Uzbekistan exports to, India and Pakistan are are like less than 1% each uh, of Uzbekistan's total mm-hmm. exports. And so, uh, you know, there there's potential for that growth. And then I think the other states in Central Asia can follow that same route. Mm. Uh, if you have the proper trade treaties in place, then it becomes a lot easier to move goods across the region for everybody. Mm. Um, and, and so, and, and, and I think we saw this plenty in the past, if Uzbekistan wants to sort of behave like a boulder in the middle of the road, mm. it can kind of sort of yeah. trip up trade for everyone in the region. Yeah. That means the opposite is true. If Uzbekistan puts in place policies, and, and I think it has to facilitate trade, then it follows that the rest of the region is going to benefit from that. Yeah, you know, that in, in the past, like when Karimov was there, Turkmenistan had lots of trouble in his transportation of electricity to Tajikistan via Uzbekistan. So uh, other than that, yeah, oh, yeah, just one more question. Maybe, James, you can jump in here. The, the type of things that earlier uh, Palawan was talking about, that Uzbekistan uh, looking to export or could export, are there any demand for that in those markets in, in Pakistan and in, in India? Well, there there probably was, although what they're going to export is probably going to change. When they exported cotton, hmm. they could always ship it to Pakistan, which seems to be the source of every bath towel I've ever seen over the last 10 years. And uh, But the Uzbeks actually want to start producing finished goods. So there's probably going to be less cotton exported and more blue jeans exported and T-shirts and mm-hmm. hankies and everything else. So I think there there may be less of that product going, you know, at least 
that type of agricultural product and they want to obviously go up market and, and produce more finished goods which will certainly give them a higher income and it'll make them less susceptible to swings in commodity prices of things like cotton and uh, although one other thing when I was there last summer I ran into a guy from Pakistan who was in Uzbekistan to buy chemicals hmm. I think industrial type chemicals and I hadn't even thought of them as exporting that sort of stuff so there may be another another market for them to uh, start exporting stuff to uh, to Pakistan in the, in that sector one other thing on, on Katie mentioned about uh, you know Uzbekistan being the boulder in in the road hmm. During the time when NATO was using Kazakhstan, Russia, Georgia, and Uzbekistan as part of the Northern Distribution Network yeah. to resupply the NATO troops after the Pakistani mm -hmm. route was, was, was cut off temporarily, Uzbekistan was known as being the hardest to deal with. Mm -hmm. I mean, every other country just said, hey, just give us two, three days notice when the train's coming through and we'll be fine with that. But Uzbekistan demanded a lot of, you know, a lot of advanced work and just to mm, basically facilitate mm. a trade of what was oftentimes just food. I mean, there were no military items like weapons being shipped on that route. Mm. But anyway, to cut it short, uh, yeah. Uzbekistan has been the pathway for to ship stuff to Afghanistan for a lot longer than probably what we're talking about. I mean, mm. NATO started the NDN probably 10 years ago. Mm. And uh, so this is just more of the same for them in a way. The points that you are raising, James, that also brings me to another topic, the, the topic that I was hoping to discuss in the second part of the show, uh, that is about the limitations. Yeah, all sounds good to me so far. Like, you know, there is a need for this uh, route to be established. There is a need for more connectivity. But how to do that? I mean, what are the limitations on, on its way to be fully established, fully functional? So what are the security challenges in Afghanistan? What kind of it's going to create and the, the Taliban uh, remaining under section. What does that say about the potential expansion of this route? I believe infrastructure in Afghanistan might also be an issue there. And then never-ending tension between India and Pakistan. So what are the challenges against implementation of the, the type of projects that we, we just spoke? Uh, and what are the ways, in fact, if there is, what are the ways to overcome those challenges? So let's continue the debate discussing these and many other questions very shortly. First, let me recap the debate that today on the Majlis podcast, I'm joined by James Dorso, the managing director of uh, Corsair LLC, a consultancy firm, Kathy Potts, managing editor of The Diplomat, Pahlawan Sodik, managing editor of Radio Free Radio Liberty's Uzbek service, and Bruce Panier, a longtime Central Asia analyst. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Radio Free Radio Liberty's media manager here in Washington, D.C., and we are discussing the importance of the Southern Trade Corridor for Central Asia. So now the tough part, the challenges. So uh, it's great if everything goes through the way it's planned. But there is a saying in, in Turkish which goes like this. The calculation at home does not always match the condition on the market. So the same question here, uh, which is, yes, it is great to see the shipment reaching to Uzbekistan, passing through all the critical junctions. First of all, through Afghanistan. The second, the shipment from India landing to Karachi and being shipped via Pakistan without any trouble. These are really good signs. 
signs. But I see there are lots of challenges on the way. Uh, the type of challenges that that kept the Trans-Afghan pipeline uh, from being el- implemented so far. I can think of a few more, but let me take your thoughts, Bruce, from that perspective, from the logistical and kind of a political perspective, type of challenges that we should anticipate this uh, route running to. You know, after years of talking about this stuff, what we what we basically have is like a trickle of trade that's just starting. You know, I mean, it, it, to get through Afghanistan, it's not like Afghanistan has a great highway system and a, and a network of, of roads or anything like that. I mean, it's they got a road probably that you can take between Uzbekistan and Pakistan, and then you know the railway line will will open that up instead of just a you know a, a slight trickle. It'll be a little more of a trickle of trade. But one railway and one road that doesn't necessarily mean that they're on the way to building this huge trade network between the north and south. That would depend on a lot of infrastructure improvements in Afghanistan before you get that that far. You know, and you, you rightly mentioned that, you know, the Taliban still have, there's resistant mo- resistance movements there. The National Front is one. Um, ISSK. ISSK is there too. Or, yeah, you know, and then ISK, of course, is still there too. And, and they would wreck anything that would benefit, you know, any government that wasn't them that was in power. So, you know, that that that's a problem. But like I said, even in ideal circumstances, you know, the Afghanistan's landscape is pretty tough. To get reliable roads that were functioning year-round, you know, is, is already going to be an amazing feat. And and the, even the one railway line is going to be an amazing feat for the same reason. You know, just because you got to go up and down and through passes and there's avalanches and all kinds of things are going to happen along the way. It's a start, but, but you know, like I said, there's natural obstacles. And then, of course, there's, the uh, you know, military obstacles that they have to face, too, getting through Afghanistan. You know, those are two big things mm-hmm. that they're going to have to come up with. It's a good sign they got trade but like i said how can you expand the one railway route and one road that mm. link them i mm. mean this is going to be a challenge yeah yeah james uh, you know from your previous assignments deployments as, as a military man in the region you should know more than what we do about those uh, dusty afghan routes and their conditions and also the security challenges that this project might run into what are your take on that well, as, as Bruce said, obviously, you know, there's going to be a lot of internal resistance to to the project, probably more from ISIS-K than from, you know, the National Liberation Front, which actually wants to keep people in Europe and North America happy. And it's going to, and if they're sh- shipping stuff through this route, they're going to be loath to obviously try to attack it. Plus, they obviously want to be known as the good guys, and they don't want to be destroying cargo that may be heading for uh, Afghan consumers. One other topic is going to be not just the physical infrastructure that Bruce talked about, but I guess we should call a human infrastructure. Mm. I mean, it takes a lot of skilled people to operate a railway system that operate it safely. And I don't know where those people are. Some of them may be in Kabul, but a lot of them may be in Europe and North America or Pakistan or some other neighboring country. So the question is going to be, do they have the people that can operate a rail system safely? And as I said, that requires, you know, skilled engineers, traffic managers, you know, people operate the system, scheduling people, safety people. So that's going to be one other thing is like, I mean, we can look at all the nice gleaming miles of track Mm -hmm. that finally get laid, Mm -hmm. but then you're going to need another type of specialist to actually operate safely on the track. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, I haven't heard anything about any of those people hanging around Mm -hmm. and some of them may have, but some of them probably left. Mm -hmm. And the Taliban is going to have to do an inventory of where those folks are and uh, Mm -hmm. obviously motivate them to show up. Yeah. And uh, but that's, I think, going to be the key thing. If, if, you know, we start having derailments and accidents, 
interest in shipping through Afghanistan is going to drop and hmm. you know because there's just going to be it's just not going to be safe and you won't be able to get insurance for your shipments and it'll hmm. be just like it was before. Mm, yeah. In Afghanistan case, they never had a railway kind of functioning railway. There is a small portion that comes from Uzbekistan to parts of Mazar-Sharif, uh, Balkh yes, province. Sir. But other than that, there is really practically Afghanistan is perhaps one of the few countries on the planet without uh, any railway system. Um, and also I was thinking about the, um, the financing, where the financing of all these projects comes from. Maybe it's going to expand our conversation today. So let's leave it for another episode. Um, so what else? What else? What else? I guess the discussion on this project started uh, between Uzbekistan and Afghanistan, Katie, uh, when Kabul was under the previous government, Ashraf Ghani's government. Now we have a new administration and that is not very popular anywhere inside and outside of Afghanistan. Uh, can this be of a hurdle? Well, I mean, the increasing trade with Uzbekistan for Afghanistan holds the same economic sense as it did for the previous government under the Taliban government. But Obviously, the political position of the Taliban government, there's no country on earth that recognizes the Taliban government, although there are some countries that are a little bit more willing to deal with with the Taliban than others. You know, that will complicate, I, I think, some of these efforts. But, you know, if the result is trade moving through Afghanistan, which can hopefully have positive knock-on effects for Afghans, you know, the, it's, it's possible. I do think it will complicate international funding. For example, yeah. you know, if, if these trade routes were in a country that wasn't run by a pariah government, then there might be more interest from international financial institutions in, in funding these these kinds of projects. I don't know that we're going to see that. The, the World Bank and the UN are, are trying to figure out how to sort of provide even humanitarian aid to yeah. Afghanistan bypassing the Taliban. So, you know, talking about support for economic projects of, of the, this kind of scale, like building more railroads in Afghanistan, for example, is just not a conversation I think anybody can really have yet. And it's this is one of the tensions uh, mm. when when the government of a country is not recognized and doesn't doesn't have sort of normal relations with the international system. Yeah, you know, you are aware about this as much as I am, uh, Kathy. You know, in recent days, you know, high-level Uzbek delegations often shows up in Washington D.C. to talk about Afghanistan. So perhaps these mm -hmm. things also comes under discussion in those kind of meetings. And then the other moving part is the the uh, maybe Bruce, you would like to jump in here. The, the India-Pakistan tension. The project is certainly not compared to Tapi in size and scope, but uh, we never seen India and Pakistan on the same page, even on that kind of vital project, Tapi, which would bring Turkmen gas through Afghanistan to Pakistan, India, and Pakistan, India desperately need gas. Even in that case, they were never on the same page. Taliban coming to power Afghanistan certainly complicates that too, at least from India's perspective. So how we expect things to go smooth from the perspective of India and Pakistan tension when it comes to this project, the pro project being the, this Afghan road opening between Central and South Asia. Your question suggests that, that, that India is really going to be a key part of this. And I'm, I'm sure India would like it like to be, and I'm sure Central Asia would like it to be. I, but for Pakistan's purposes, it really doesn't matter yeah. if India is part of it or not, right? Yeah, that, you know, that, I mean, that, that's they, true. But... Central Asia could still get to Pakistani ports and everything. And, and that would satisfy some of what Central Asia wanted. Pakistan would be happy that they would be able to trade into Central Asia. We, you know, we, we haven't expanded the route or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But don't forget that Central Asia railways link to other places, too. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, they could get to China, they could get to Russia, all kinds of stuff. So, so for Pakistan, you know, but but if it is just India and Pac- Pakistan, and we're talking about that, then yes, this is obviously a problem. I mean, you know, people have been making these arguments, you know, for years that that uh, economic cooperation would smooth out political differences, you know. But but Pakistan and India are an example where the political differences are so deep that there's no amount of economic cooperation you can imagine at the moment that would make them friends or get them to agree regularly on something. So so that's a tough one, you know, like I said, it's since Uzbekistan and Pakistan are the ones that have been doing most of the talking about this, you know, for a while, a couple of years now, you know, that, that I don't know how much further they see this thing going. No. And even the shipment of sugar that we've been talking no. about, right, it went, it had to be shipped by sea to Pakistan because yeah. their Pakistan restricts Indian vehicles from crossing into yeah. the country, yeah. Yeah. going across the country. They made an exception for the yeah. humanitarian aid to Afghanistan, I know, but but the sugar had to go hmm. by boat first and hmm. then get to a port and then get loaded onto trucks that brought it up hmm. to Uzbekistan. Hmm. And this is an example of what we're up against. Yeah, yeah. You know, no, there the is... Yeah, the reason the reason I brought up India in this obviously in the context that we are talking about today, the shipment coming from India through Pakistan and Afghanistan arriving to Uzbekistan. So there is an Indian link in that. And also we have seen, uh, you know, we have did a podcast a couple of weeks back when they had a presidential level conversation about improving ties. So India certainly would like to be part of the conversation at least on the in the in the context of trade and economy in Central Asia. So if that's the plan, that and where does the, the tension between India and uh, Pakistan falls in on way ahead going forward in this project. So I guess we covered lots of grounds, but is there any other moving part that I might have forget in terms of the challenges, limitations in this conversation? It's just kind of open question for anyone. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, the reasons that we're talking about this Pakistan route so much is because the existing other routes that Uzbekistan has to international markets are, are complicated by global political mm-hmm. problems. Iran would be a much easier route. It has a lot more railroads uh, than Afghanistan, for example, but it is under heavy sanctions. Uh, and now the same is true of Russia. And so, you know, this is obviously part of a diversification of trade routes. But should the situations regarding Russia and Iran change, then then that also sort of will impact how much effort is is sort of consequently put into the Pakistan route. Mm. Okay, um, you know, it's it's always good to find some positive angle to, to end the conversation. So from that <laughs> perspective, it's just the final question here. So what are the scenarios in which this, this project can really happen? And what needs to happen to make this happen? Well, I think that one thing would be if the United States indicates that it would sure like to see it happen. I mean, I don't think it's going to free up any money, obviously, because most of that will probably come from places like the Asian Development Bank or the Islamic Development Bank. But I would think a signal from the U.S. that it thinks this is a good thing for the region would probably help because a lot of people are probably holding back, fearing that if they do anything, the next day they're going to be getting a letter from the U.S. Treasury Department telling them they've been sanctioned for something or other. And so the U.S. probably needs to put some I used to say political support behind it, or at least I guess you'd say what they used to call a letter of non-objection, that yeah, you, uh, it you would was... like to see this go ahead as a regional initiative to mm. basically help Central Asia, South Asia, and even Iran in terms of you know mm. securing regular, I mean, they need to import a lot of food. 
And, you know, more people in Iran eat than just the Revolutionary Guard. Mm -hmm. So I think just something from the U.S. that they're not going to scupper an effort to increase regional mm -hmm. trade would probably be a good thing. But mm -hmm. I think Washington's pretty busy right now with a bunch of other stuff. This yeah, probably yeah, won't yeah, rise yeah. to the top of the to-do list for some time, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Washington is busy. Let's leave it there. Um, is there any <laughs> other is there any other thing like is there any other, anything else that could help this project becoming becoming a reality? Like uh, any other thoughts? there otherwise i'm going to conclude the conversation yeah just a quick point mm -hmm. on the uh, trade uh, regime mm -hmm. which exists uh, in, in uzbekistan i mean as you know uzbekistan is still not the market economy transformation mm -hmm. from uh, the soviet style centralized mm -hmm. economy to the market one has been very very slow and uh, i think the main challenge in the case of uzbekistan to this project comes from the the structure of the Uzbekistan's economy itself, especially in trade, despite all of these talks about opening up and about building new uh, trade routes and railways, Uzbekistan still has a very, very restrictive trade regime. And uh, only yesterday we have published one document which shows that the only a handful people close to the government have benefited from the privatization program, privatization mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. yeah. state. So the corruption, the monopoly and the restrictions on the trade would not help Uzbekistan mm. to implement or to, to reach, to have an access to the, the world markets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in other words, just to kind of rephrase your uh, thoughts on that, I mean, the question being like, what can help? Um, so you are saying that, you know, Uzbekistan needs to fix It is a structure that be wanting to help to move this project and the other well. thing and the other thing is like a transparency in the country It will help uh, as well. So um, Kathy Bruce, any, any other thoughts to add? Uh, I would just add that Uzbekistan has to make itself a partner that these other countries want to work with. And that also includes sort of, I think, injecting some creativity in, in finding new markets. There are a lot of Indian consumers, for example, and, and Uzbekistan could potentially sort of focus on catering to those consumers and finding out, you know, what is it that would sell there? Um, but, uh, you know, there there is a lot of potential. And I think Pavlon's right that, you know, these other countries have to want to work with Uzbekistan as much as Uzbekistan wants to work with them. Right. And that that's going to take a lot of uh, continued reforms, I think. Mm. Um, uh, Bruce, uh, any final wise thoughts from you? Uh, wise thoughts? I don't know. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, I, Pavlon uh, mentioned earlier in the conversation that, you know, the Russian potential role in, in building the railway. And, mm -hmm. and as he rightly pointed out, I mean, that really can't because of sanctions. But yeah. considering that Russia's trade with the West is about to, is already taking a pretty big hit mm -hmm. and might be cut majorly in the future here. Mm -hmm. These routes, southern routes, especially to countries like India, probably look a lot more attractive to Russia at the moment. And they have their own competing project, right? Mm -hmm. The railway line that goes through the Caucasus and through Iran if they want to build. But still, if the Central Asians can pull this off, I think Russia would at least give them the railway project and stuff, a kind of moral support that they, they never did before because, uh, you know, they just took the attitude if they didn't benefit from it directly, then, then who cares? And in any way, anything that made the Central Asians actually more independent They put differently, less dependent upon Russia was probably a bad thing ultimately. But considering that their their trade westward is is going to be take a big hit here, you know they they might give a lot more support to ideas of Central Asian links 
to Pakistan or and hopefully to India. Mm. Terrific. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was great. So thank you very much, Bruce Panier, uh, Central Asia analyst, for, for being part of the show today. And big thanks to James Dorso, the managing uh, director of Crusade, a consultancy firm. Kathy Putz, the managing editor of The Diplomat, and Pahlawan Sadiq, uh, managing editor of Radio Free Europe with the Liberties Uzbek Service, locally known as Ozotlik. Thank you very much, colleagues, for joining us today. And this is it from me, Mohammed Tahir, Radio Free Europe with the Liberties Media Manager and host of the Majlis podcast here in Washington, D.C. Until next week, bye-bye.